Okay, uh, we're in the latter part of Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to finish that up and get into chapter 4 tonight. So, uh want to read verses 17 through 21, the last part of Philippians 3. Do I have a volunteer to read that? Chris? Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Okay, thank you. We got into this just a little bit at the end of class uh, on Sunday. But here he's making a contrast between the ones he's been talking about, those uh, Judaizers, those false teachers uh, who are trying to pull the Philippians away from following after Christ, contrast that with the true citizens of heaven. Uh, And he starts off encouraging them to follow uh, the example that he had given as well as other faithful Christians. And, you know, we talked a little bit about how, you know, having those good examples to follow can be very helpful to us. And then in verse 18, uh, he gets into, you know, the bad examples. Uh, you know, he says there are many who walk. Doesn't give us an exact number, but many. And he says, whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping. And so... The word weeping there is a word that, you know, means intense grief, uh, lamentation, audible grief. Uh, and he, he had that, that great feeling of grief for these people. And then he calls enemies of the cross of Christ. And makes you wonder, okay, why is he grieving over them? And I think there's a couple of possibilities. One, he's already admonished the Philippians to stand firm in the faith. And he's clearly concerned that these false teachers can pull them away. And so he's concerned about that. And knows that there's a risk there. But I also think another distinct possibility, these were fellow Jews of Paul. Paul was a Jew. And these were Jews that were trying to lead them away from the cross of Christ. And so he could well be weeping bitterly for his Jewish brothers who are trying to run the Philippians as well as running their own souls by 
you know, following after this false teaching and, you know, making this false teaching. Uh, and so, uh, he points out how much grief that he himself has over that. Uh, and he's wanting them to see that clearly the right way is to follow Christ. And that reminds me, in the book of Galatians, Paul talked about these same Judaizers. And he issues some warnings. Uh, like in Galatians 2, verse 21, uh, if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ died in vain. Yeah, you could be righteous with the, by following the law, then why did Christ have to come and have to suffer? Uh, also in Galatians 5, verse 2, Christ would profit them nothing. And in 5, verse 4, those who were being justified by the law, Christ had become no effect to them, and they were fallen from grace. So, similar type warning to what he gave there in Galatians chapter 5. Uh, then in uh, verse 19... He brings up three characteristics of these people. First of all, he says, whose end is destruction. So he talks about the path that they're on and where it leads. You know, certain and permanent destruction. And he mentions that, and that's a contrast to something he's brought up earlier back in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 28 which uh, says in no way alarmed by your opponents which is a sign of destruction for them but of salvation for you and that too from, from God so you have the contrast of destruction and salvation uh, there and then he talks about whose God is their appetite or their belly. And what do you think he might mean by that? Because there's certainly some different possibilities that we could consider. But uh, when you think of someone whose God is their appetite or their belly, what uh, sorts of things do you think of? Lloyd? They're striving for earthly materialistic things. Okay. Sure. And even even more than just like, ooh, I want all the newest cars, it's probably has an overtone of either it's like sensuality or physicality mm-hmm. that it's something related more to the body than <coughs> to just possessions. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly since the next one whose glory is in their shame kind of mm-hmm. Leans that way. Yeah, yeah, that's another possibility as well, uh, Katrina. Uh, it reminds me of like Psalms. A lot of the Psalms talk about you know, how people lead themselves to destruction, basically. But Psalm thirty-five, verse seven and eight, where without cause they hid their net for me, without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it, and let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it through his destruction. So, like, they were trying to lead others away, but really, mm-hmm. they were sitting there on the nets. Right. Their own traps. Right. What? 
I think it's interesting too, and Paul just earlier had talked about the sacrifices that he had made in order to follow Jesus. Mm-hmm. And his emphasis on them is they are enemies. He doesn't say they're enemies of Christ. They're enemies of the cross of Christ. Mm-hmm. They're not going to sacrifice like Paul was able to sacrifice or had, had given himself to Christ. Uh, they're enemies of the cross. And then these, these uh, descriptive uh, statements there in verse 19, mm-hmm. their minds on earthly things. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, those are all good thoughts. Uh, one passage I wanted to turn to that uses uh, really the same kind of language. Go to, go to Romans chapter 16. You know, the last chapter of Romans. Romans 16, verses 17 and 18. It says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. So, Paul's warning the Romans about those who are slaves to their own appetites, their own belly, their desires. Same word uh, that's used here. Uh, And they're clearly not serving Jesus, but serving their own desires, their own wants. And one way they were doing that was in causing dissensions and hindrances contrary to what the Christians had been taught. Uh, So they were causing divisions by putting their own selfish desires ahead of the truth of God. Uh, And then, uh, back in Philippians 4, uh, the last thing, and you know, some of you have touched on that, that uh, it says, whose glory is in their shame. Uh, And so they found glory in satisfying themselves and their own desires. Uh, And that was what they gloried in, boasted in, as opposed to the cross of Christ, which Paul has said earlier in Philippians that they needed to boast and glory in that. And so this walk made them shameful. And then his final statement there, who set their minds on earthly things, that kind of summarizes what he's talked about there. Then, in the last two verses, Paul gets back to a concept that he actually introduced back in chapter 1. Uh, about their citizenship. If you remember back in chapter 1, verse 27, it says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the word conduct, that's the verb form of this word in verse 20 for citizenship. And if you recall, when we were studying chapter 1, we talked about how Philippi was a Roman colony, And so the residents of Philippi enjoyed the same privileges as Roman citizens. Even though they weren't in Rome, 
They weren't even in Italy. But because they were a Roman colony, they had those privileges, those rights. And so Paul is using that context, but saying, you're citizens of heaven something even more important than the Roman Empire. And uh, these people would have known what that citizenship, the importance of that. And so by pointing out that you are part of a heavenly commonwealth, a colony of heaven, and that you need to live in that way, uh, I think that would have carried a lot of weight with them. Uh, and so he, he brings that up again. Uh, and so belonging to this heavenly commonwealth, they needed to be looking heavenward because it says, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, if our citizenship is in heaven, our allegiance is in heaven, we're going to be looking to Christ to follow him and looking for him to come back and claim his own. He says we eagerly wait for that. And then in verse 21, says he will transform the body of our humble state. Uh, that's the New American Standard Version. Uh, I think the King James Version uses the term vile body. And uh, what you read, Chris, what did it say? Lowly body. Lowly body, yeah. I couldn't remember. It was something a little different. Uh, Any other translations that anybody has of that? Okay, I, I think from my study, the idea was kind of a a natural body, an earthly type body. You know, much like uh, 1 Corinthians 15 uses language like that. Uh, Uses natural body in verse 44, earthy in verse 49, uh, being subject to death and corruption, verses 42, 50, and 53, and 54. And then talks about how this mortal creature in verses 51 and 52 must put on immortality. Corruption must put on in, incorruption, verse 53. So, just the idea of our bodies being transformed from the earthly form that we see and are familiar with, but we know that is decaying. And the older we get, the more painfully we are aware of that uh, but will be changed into a glorious body, a heavenly body uh, and that's something that we can certainly look forward to and he brings up right at the end, says by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself and you know the concept of Christ subjecting everything subjected to him except the Father uh, that's a concept we certainly read about different places in the scripture and saying 
the power that allows Christ to be over all these things is the same power that will transform this earthly, physical, temporary body into an eternal, glorious body like the body that Christ was resurrected with. Uh, And you think about it, subjecting all things would take more power than just changing these bodies. So the fact that Christ is able to have everything subject to him is an indication he's got the power to make this change for us. And so that's some words of encouragement there to to wrap that up. So, what thoughts or comments do you have on that before we head into chapter 4? Okay. Uh, see if we can read the first seven verses of chapter 4. Mark, you want to do that? Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Herodia, I urge Syntyche, to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, <clears throat> Clement also uh, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. Okay, thank you. So, he starts off calling them my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown. You think about those words. Paul's laying it on thick. He's definitely has these very strong feelings for these brethren. Uh, He feels a close connection. And kind of tying back to what he's just talked about, you know, knowing that they were part of a great commonwealth, which is in heaven, and that they eagerly look for the Savior to come and change their mortal bodies into bodies like the glorious body of the Lord Jesus Christ. They readily should give ear to this word of exhortation to be true and steadfast until his coming. So he's encouraging them to do that in verse 1. And the term that he uses, he says, whom I long to see, that's the same word that we read back in chapter 2 and verse 26. Epaphroditus when he heard that the Philippians had heard about his sickness and they were very concerned about him. In verse 26, it says, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because he had heard, because you had heard that he was sick. Same word that Epaphroditus had that longing to get word to them that I'm okay now. Uh, so I thought that was uh, was interesting. Uh, 
And then he talks about his joy and crown. Uh, you know, joy is a theme that we've seen throughout this book. And then we talk some about the crown on Sunday. This word crown was not the diadem, the royal crown, the crown of a ruler, but it was the wreath of the athlete that won the race. And uh, I understand that that was wilted lettuce. <laughs> okay. That's what Tom Hamilton said. Okay. Oh. He said he had some in his refrigerator. Okay. Well, I'm glad to know Tom was back at that time and knew that. I'll uh, I'll have to mention that to him next time I see him. I'll probably see him when I'm down in Florida. So, uh, uh, but uh, you know, this was the wreath that the athletes would get, and as we talk. Uh, you know, this crown wasn't just for the winner. It was for all who finished the race. And uh, so Paul talks about them as his joy and crown uh, and admonishes them to stand fast. And then he brings up uh, a couple of people, Euodia and Syntyche, or however you pronounce that, what do we know about them? They were women. They were women, yes. We do know that. Yeah. They were workers in the gospel with Paul. Yes. He does talk about that. And the terms that he used that were the, the fellow workers, fellow laborers, that was a pretty strong term. Uh, that was no small accomplishment to be called a fellow worker with Paul. So they had done a lot of good. I think that's pretty easy to to get from this. What else do we know about them? They had a disagreement. They had a disagreement. Do we read about them anywhere else in the scriptures? I saw one head shaking no. And a lot of blank stares. But the answer is, no, we don't. So all we know about them is just right here. Uh, but they did have a disagreement. And apparently a disagreement of some significance. Because he takes the time to urge them to live in harmony with one another. And it seems like he has some concern that If they don't, this is such a significant disagreement, this could be a real hindrance to the church. Uh, I think that's a reasonable assumption given the fact that he's choosing to specifically mention them. Uh, Yeah. I can't help but wonder if the the disagreement between them, the difficulty between them involved both of them being right and both of them being wrong in some regard and having that difficulty of seeing eye to eye again and that they needed the help of the others in the group to 
whether it's to remind them this is what you need to do, you need to let it go, or to help them see the other side of it. I mean, it because if it were, you know, Yodia was the one who was in the wrong and Sintichi was not, then it would have been worded differently. It would have been something, it'd be like, okay. admonish her and support her and make them be friends again kind of thing. And mm-hmm. not, not both of you need to work at this. Okay. And he also, at the beginning of verse 3, indeed to true comrade, I ask you also to help these women. So, he mentions someone not by name, but apparently someone who was so well known by that term, true comrade, that that person would have known. And it's like, help these women. Now, who was that? I don't know. There's some speculation of different people, uh, but we're not told. Uh, so, must not be that important. Uh, yeah. Isn't there some speculation that true companion is actually a proper name? Mm-hmm. That it that it could be. Yes, there it is. Could have been yeah. in, um, translated when it didn't need to be translated. So. Yes, I did read that. Uh, so that is a possibility as well. Uh, there's several possibilities uh, that I read. Uh, so, how could they live in harmony? How could they be of the same mind? I think some translations render that. Katrina? It says in the Lord. So it wasn't just yes. opinion. Right. That's how we can be united. And really, the only true source of unity is in the Lord. Uh, That's the unity that matters. So, that's how they needed to be in this regard as well. With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That, that whole, sounds familiar. It does. I, it, it just came to me <laughs> when I flipped the page back and read it. Right, uh, right. So. <laughs> yep. Okay. Okay. And then he mentions Clement. What do we know about Clement? What? There's another fellow over Yes, uh, another fellow. Clement. Uh, right. <laughs> yes. Because uh, he talks about together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers who na- whose names are in the book of life. Hold that thought. We'll be back to there in just a minute. Yeah, uh, Dave. I was, uh, I was thinking about the two, the two ladies disagreeing with each other, and I was thinking about Paul and Barnabas having the argument over mm-hmm. John Mark, mm-hmm. and I wonder if Paul thought about that interaction at all. And, and, I, and I know we don't know, but it, it's you know what I mean. Like how, how does that reconcile with each other? He's telling two ladies who might probably disagree on style, not substance. 
You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. in the same way, I think he and Barnabas didn't. They he disagreed over style, not substance. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So how, okay. how, how would you look at that? You know what I mean? How, how, how would you? I guess. Is it okay for Paul to disagree with somebody and go 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 their way separate ways, but not okay for these ladies? You know what I mean? Well, I think if you look at what Paul and Barnabas did, they were able to cover more territory separately than they were together. Uh, and I think their separating actually enhanced the Lord's work. Uh, whereas these ladies weren't exactly in that position that they were going to be traveling about. That's That would be my initial reaction to that. I think that's a significant difference. Uh, but that's an interesting point to ponder. I hadn't thought about that. Well, that's what it looks like. That's the way Paul and Barnabas worked that difficulty out. Yes. I don't know that they agreed right. about John Mark when they left one another. Right. They 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 didn't give up doing the work. This situation seems to be hindering the work right. of the church there. Okay. Philippi. Okay. That's a that's a good point. Chris? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if the language on this enough about it to know whether it indicates for sure that they that their disagreement was with each other. I mean, is it isn't it possible that these two people he's saying they need to agree in the Lord like with everybody else, and then he mentions a bunch of people whose names are in the book of life. So could it be that these two are a little bit outside of this? I mean, I don't, I don't know. Okay, there's really not enough information here to make any conclusions about any of this as to what to do, other than. Um, <laughs> Agreeing in the Lord, we can agree. Okay. <laughs> we probably ought to all do that. So you're saying it could be that these two women agreed with one another, but were kind of out of step with... With everyone with, else. Yeah. Uh, that, okay. I hadn't thought about that, but I, I think that could fit. Uh, yeah, there's a lot we don't know. Uh, now, when we go back to Paul and Barnabas for a minute... Uh, who was ultimately right about John Mark? Barnabas was. Because Paul later says, bring him to me, he's useful to me. And so, I mean, Paul had his reasons for not wanting him to go along with them, and they seemed to be pretty decent reasons. You know, he left us the first time, we're not going to make this mistake again, but in the end... He had to acknowledge that John Mark had grown. He was very useful, and so Barnabas was really the on the mm-hmm. correct side of that. Uh, and Paul's willing to admit that. So, and I don't know that the two of them ever disagreed in the Lord. Correct. I mean, that would be the difference yes. that I would see there. Yes. And and again, I don't know exactly what that means. <laughs> yeah. <coughs> yeah. In this situation. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's also talk about uh, right at the end of verse 3 that, that Claudia brought out, because that, that's a, a really good thing to uh, to talk about for a minute. It says, Whose names are in the book of life 
The phrase book of life is used elsewhere in the in the New Testament. In fact, it's used seven times in the New Testament. Guess where the other six times are? The book of Revelation. Uh, and from what I read, it looks like the Jews actually kept a register of their citizens which was called the book of the living and so that's something that they were probably familiar with so not a term totally foreign to them Uh, but certainly when you think about that and you think about God's book of life and what we read about, uh, you know, both here and in Revelation, these are those who have been faithful to God. And that's a book you want your name in. Uh, God's book of remembrance. Uh, there, is, there is another place besides Revelation in Luke, 19, in Luke 10 and verse uh, 19, uh, okay. where the disciples are talking about... Uh, uh, they, they just returned. The 70 have just come back. They uh, were watching Satan fall from heaven. And Jesus uh, says, Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Okay. So, slightly different wording, but the same concept. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So was the, the Jews' usage... Of the Book of the Living was that like a genealogy kind of thing? Yeah, or a census okay. type of thing. It's uh, kind of what I got out of it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And then he, you know, talks about rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice, talking about that joy, and uh, we can rejoice always when we're rejoicing in the Lord. Because that's a a rejoicing that doesn't depend on our circumstances. And that thought's going to be important just a couple of verses later as well. Uh, Then he says, Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. That term, forbearing spirit... Uh, is also translated your moderation, your forbearance, your gentleness. And I read one author that chose to call it big-heartedness. Which I thought, okay. ESV says reasonableness. Okay. Reasonableness. That, that fits. Yes. Uh, so... From that, I think we can get that a Christian must be known as a person who's willing to forgo some of his own rights out of sympathy and consideration for the needs of others. Uh, And Christ certainly demonstrated that quality. And so that's something I think we can take to heart and, uh, and apply. And then he says the Lord's at hand, and that seems to have a couple of possible meanings. 
you know, the Lord's nearby, he's close, he's present with his people, or he's going to be coming soon. And we know we're in the last days. We don't know how long that is. Uh, But I think either of those would fit. And then we get down to verses 6 and 7, and I will readily admit these are some of my favorite verses in the scriptures. Uh, they mean a lot to me personally. Uh, they're sometimes hard to apply, hard to do, but the rewards are great if you can do so. It says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Be anxious for nothing. Don't worry about things. How many times do we worry about things? Not looking for a show of hands. But isn't worry somewhat universal among people? We tend to worry about lots of things. We tend to worry about things we don't have much control over. And we tend to worry about our circumstances. And especially when our circumstances, the things that are happening to us, aren't really what we want to have happen. Let's face it, most of us, we've kind of figured out how we want our life to go. Does it always go that way? No. And so what do we do when it doesn't? We can worry about it, but how much good does that do? But here, I think Paul is supplying a an alternate course. Something we can do other than worrying. And I would argue something that is far better for us, both spiritually and physically. Have you ever known anybody or known yourself to worry yourself sick? Yeah, I think so. I think we all know people like that and have probably been guilty of that ourselves sometimes. Uh, Worry is hard on our bodies. That is stress that is not good for us. Uh, it doesn't seem to accomplish a whole lot, especially in the positive. But Paul gives us another way. What does he say to do? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, 
with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So, the idea of prayer and supplication. Instead of worrying about it, pray to God. Give it to God. Does God care about the things that happen to us? I think he does. I think he indicates he does. And in consideration of that, turn to the book of Matthew. Have a passage in the the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. I want to read this starting in verse 25. My Bible has the heading just prior to verse 25 the cure for anxiety <laughs> says for this reason I say to you do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink nor for your body as to what you shall put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing look at the birds of the air they do not sow neither do they reap nor gather into barns And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so arrays the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more do so for you, O men of little faith? Do not be anxious then, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Some really sound words from our Lord. He gives examples out of creation, the birds, the flowers God takes care of them don't you think he'll take care of you too and then what does being anxious what does worry really do for you it can't make you taller or live longer uh And he talks about the things that we tend to worry about, the physical things. And it's like, leave these things to God. This is what the Gentiles seek after. We're, we've got a higher calling. We need to give these things to God. And what's said there, I think, fits in with what Paul's saying here in chapter 4 of Philippians very well we give it to God and if we give it to God that means we got to let go of it and not worry about it 
And I'll grant you that's the hard part. But can we truly say we've given it to God if we're still holding on? I don't think we can. He tells us, cast our care on Him because He cares for you. So, we need to pray. God wants us to pray. Tell Him what's bothering us. Give Him a chance to take care of it. And then there's the little phrase with thanksgiving. And I think that's a real key too. Count our blessings. Think about what all we have to be thankful for. God has done so much for us. Top by the gift of His Son and that chance for eternal life. That's so much more important than whatever happens to us in this life. We need to make sure that we have our priorities straight. Leanne? It's important for me whenever I think about this to remember that Paul was in prison. Uh Uh-huh. Like tortured and all that stuff to go through his list of difficulties and the difficulties for the people that he loved because this can really start to sound like platitudes and um, uh, just, oh, don't worry about it, you know? And that's really, you said it's hard to do. It's, it can be feel almost impossible to do. Mm-hmm. And to think that we're just told to not, especially in the face of something that never goes away, <coughs> seemingly never goes away, you know, the constant reality. I guess just, I guess the reason I'm talking is just to say, it's so important to read this in context of his difficulties. Um, honestly, really awful situation because it's a lot easier to take that advice from somebody in the, in the trenches. Yes, exactly. When we keep that in mind, if Paul could have that attitude, it should be easier for us to have that attitude. Katrina? I think it also helps when we remember um, this almost sounds like a class here, but <laughs> remember that you know all throughout he's writing this book he's talking about the Lord and King you know he talked about that that's one of the only places he says that together um, but not only is it somebody that cares about what we're going through but has the power and the knowledge and understanding so like you know instead of my kids trying to figure out how to bandage their finger they just come to me and say hey I need help so like why wouldn't we do that with God in the same way mm-hmm. okay Bob do you have your hand up I did okay. I, I just the idea of Paul's not telling us to just be flippant and indifferent about mm-hmm. things uh, that what measure of people would we be if we were like that but at the same time his plea is <clears throat> trust mm-hmm and it's the trust that that we that is reinforced when we go to God in prayer to to be able to release. Mm-hmm. Boy, uh, one one writer suggests that these directives there are five in, in verses four through nine are meant are directed toward these two women and toward mm-hmm. the problems that are going on there. These are the things that would resolve any issues that they might have. Yeah, I've read that, and I think that's certainly a possibility. But I think it certainly applies to all of us. 
Uh, and then, what do we accomplish in that? Verse 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I've known people that have, they say, I'm just a worrier. I can't help it. I can't imagine not worrying. And knowing them, I think that's a pretty accurate statement. But this says, the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. It's beyond what you can comprehend. Just like we looked at this in Ephesians chapter 3, the end of chapter 3, about the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge or comprehension in Ephesians 3.19. So just like that love is beyond what we can really comprehend, so is this peace that God promises. And so I'd encourage each of you, give that a try. I've tried to do that. And I've got I had several personal examples that I won't share with the class, but if anybody wants to talk to me privately, be happy to share them. I had some things happen to me that on the surface weren't good and would have been cause for worry. But I trusted in God. And it's like, God's got a plan. I just don't know what it is yet. And in the end, God knew what he was doing. He always does. Sir? And uh, it's kind of cool that, so this peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds. And so it's not this, just this simple, placid, happy feeling. It's something that will protect you and... It's almost like an active piece. I, mm-hmm. I don't know how to... Mm-hmm. I mean, I've got a note from a previous study, don't leave the fort, you know, stay mm-hmm. within the piece, so... Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you for all your comments. And we'll, uh, Craig will uh, start up here on Sunday. Mm-hmm.